0: Press a button here. Press a button there. Three, two, one. That means we're live. Perfect. Recording. Everything's on. Everything's working. Hopes everyone's doing super well. Facebook in the house today. Uh, this is episode two of The Emulsion. I'm Justin Kana. Hopefully you checked out last week's episode, so you're a little bit caught up on what's been happening. Um, If you're in the industry and you had a Valentine's Day service last night, respect, respect. Uh, This was kind of my first one outside of a restaurant, uh, as far as Valentine's Days go, in what feels like forever, uh, I guess. And to be honest, I mean, it's busy, it's not really that difficult though with all those two tops, especially if you kind of make a set menu, but... That's coming from the guy sitting at a desk right now with a microphone. Man, I miss I miss crushing service. Um, but I digress. Uh, I gotta set up a stage soon. That would be fun. Get back, get back in the kitchen a little bit. Um, the lady and I stayed in last night. Um, we made some potstickers and drank some champagne and. My apartment building manager was giving out some Valentine's Day themed cupcakes, so we had some of those. Um, I mean, I know that game, right? The restaurant Valentine's Day game. You, I mean, we don't we don't need the truffle option to celebrate February fourteenth. But you're here, I'm here. This is Emulsion episode two. So last week was our first episode. Um, so I can't promise a lot just yet, but if you're new here, I cover food and restaurant industry-related news, so all the stuff that's been exciting to me over the past week, and I broadcast it live. Um, there's a little bit of random news that I'll kind of sprinkle in there, mostly at the end, uh, stuff that I've kind of found compelling, just to make sure you get a little bit of outside information from the the restaurant industry bubble that we, we live in. So... The reason every episode is streamed live is because I want to kind of take advantage of the small audience size that we're working with right now. I want to make sure this is a a conversational show um, forever. So maybe that changes to hashtagging uh, later on, but um, these videos are going to be broadcasted live, then saved, and then posted to my Facebook profile, fan page, and then my YouTube channel. So if you miss out on the live stream, you can still catch them there. And ultimately, the Emulsion podcast, which is what's being recorded now, can be found on SoundCloud so you can listen wherever you are in the world on your own time. All right, with that introduction over, let's get into the first story, which is something that actually dropped this morning. Um, And that's the semifinalists for the James Beard Awards 2017. They're going to be in Chicago again this year. uh, And that's a little weird for me because when I was in culinary school in 2011, 2012, I would attend the awards when they were in Avery Fisher Hall in Lincoln Center um, on, what was it, 61st Street, I think, because I I remember Per Se was at 59th Street. That's where Columbus Circle was, and it was just north of there. You could walk there. Maybe it was 63rd Street. I'm not entirely sure. Um, And to me, that was, like, crazy to attend the awards um, because there's such this uh, industry phenomenon, uh, and everyone's there. It was like... So basically, the way that I was able to do that was I used my school, Culinary Institute of America, which is where I went to culinary school, and I used that to kind of leverage um, and reach out to chefs who wanted students to help them. Because the way it worked back then, uh, I mean, it it used to be in New York and it moved to Chicago. I'm not really sure how they... I, I read in the press release that the event is open to the public now, which is a little bit crazy because it's like saying the Grammys is open to the public um, you needed an in to get in. Um, but the way the James Spirit Awards work now is, um, or back then was they, the chefs would set up these tables and they would serve a dish. So you'd have this big poster thing next to your table and it'd say like Paul Kahn publican, who is actually one of the chefs that I worked with the second year that I was there and whatever little canapes or snacks you were serving, um, that would kind of list who you were and where you came from. And they're usually nominated chefs, but um, basically all night, chefs and photographers and media people and sommeliers would walk up to your table and taste your stuff, and they'd chat with each other and chat with the chef who made the food, and it was a super cool party. I mean, I, I highly recommend any American culinary student to get involved in something that makes it available for you to attend in some sort of way, especially if you're in Chicago already. So then after the snacks you'd go inside this auditorium they would do the awards they would go up on stage they'd give away people would have speeches and then afterwards people would come out and they'd start drinking again and eating or whatever um and i was 19 but i would still drink nice champagne and kind of stand there like a wallflower and watch all these chefs i admired and that i'd read about walk around on the floor and they'd talk with other culinary school kids and i'd talk with other culinary school kids and then afterwards, there was always stories of these parties that people would have across the street at Bar Balud, where Daniel Baloud would be up on the bar sabering bottles and singing in French. It was crazy. But I couldn't get in because I wasn't old enough, and I'd usually have to be back in Hyde Park for class the next day, but that's how I was as a culinary school student. But uh, getting back to the story, this is kind of the point in the process when they announce the finalists. that's super exciting, because... Um, a lot of the places get their name on a national stage when this happens, uh, because they're usually from cities in the U.S. that aren't usually highlighted because Michelin Guide isn't there. So um, they're only they they have the kind of like a sense of community back in their city, whether it's like Portland or Baltimore or Nashville or something like that. But then. Um, when James Beard comes out with semifinalists, you are able to kind of get your get your name out in front of everyone because everybody's looking at the list. The whole country's looking at the list. Um, and, I mean, I definitely skimmed for Seattle when I looked at the list, and I found a few places that I hadn't heard of that I'm going to check out Um because this list is pretty reputable. Um, I mean, just from me browsing the list of winners from years past when I was researching for the show, um, they really have a knack for picking places that aren't really that trendy, but they're pretty solid all the way around. Um, so how do these awards work, and what's the history of it? Um, so James Beard, who is who was an American chef, he passed away in 1985. Um so we had this house where a bunch of media people and chefs and I assume some philanthropists decided to create what's now called the James Beard Foundation. Um, so in that house, they hold over 250 dinners per year. Um, this is kind of straight off their website. Um, so if you kind of see a chef that you follow that's cooking at the James Beard house, it's usually for a charity or to bring awareness to something that's really what they focus on. Um and these awards, which started in 1990, which are basically a content play on behalf of this foundation. And not, that's not to say it's a bad thing. In the same way that, like, the Michelin, Michelin, the company, started the Michelin Guide because they wanted to sell more tires and Sam Pellegrino wanted to sell more water. I mean, the James Beard Foundation wants to stay relevant and provide recognition to chefs all over the U.S. Do we need them? No. Are they nice to have? Yes. And this is something that you might see me reference again and again as we cover awards on the show because it comes up a lot. It's it's not something I'm against. I just want to make one of my opinions very clear, and that's that you should know all the information that goes along with these awards. Um, who's running the show? Who votes? Who? How do you get nominated? What's the criteria? What's the benefit to winning? I think it's fascinating, and it's such a huge part of the industry I'm not the guy who goes to enough places to weigh in on the selections themselves, but I want to make sure that we are recognizing um, achievements properly and not just because someone put a number before the restaurant name on a a list, if that makes sense. I read another article this morning actually on Dominique Crenn from the New York Times um, where you kind of get a good look at um, the awards and lists and media. All this is going to be linked um, down below. Now, for the James Beard Awards... uh, um, I'll link also the full press release in the show notes, Um, but to make sure I bring you kind of a distilled version of the information that goes along with the awards, this is kind of what you need to know. Um, Mid-October every year, um, they ask for online open entries. So this year, 24,000 entries were received, which is a little bit crazy. Um, The Restaurant and Chef Committee review eligibility and regional representation they select a list um, and determine semifinalists in 21 different categories. So that's the list you'll see if you check out um, what I linked down below. Um, it's sent to a independent vol- volunteer panel of more than 600 judges from across the country. Um, that includes critics, food and wine editors, culinary educators, past James Beard Foundation restaurant and chef award winners. So people that have won in the past. Um, and they vote. So then they determine the five nominees in each category. So then the same judges vote again on the five nominees to select the winners. Um, So while there is a little bit of um, um, viewership uh, nominations, the kind of panel and committee that they select kind of determines the winners in the end. Um, They do say that the Governing Awards Committee and the Board of Trustees and the staff of the James Beard Foundation do not vote which is cool to know. Um, If you do a little bit of research on any of the other uh, awards and lists, you'll kind of find maybe a little bit of corruption that's happening. I'm starting to feel like one of those podcasters that uh, talks about conspiracy theories and stuff like that. Um, And each award category has an individual committee made up of industry professionals who volunteer their time, so that's also important to know that they're not paid. Um, But anyways... There's a few dates to keep in mind going forward, and that is uh, March 15th. It's a Wednesday. Um, that's when they will announce the finalists. And they'll also announce the finalists for another um, entirely separate awards show that they do where they um, highlight media and journalism. Um, and that award show will happen on Tuesday, April 25th. And then the big day, uh, Monday, May 1st, in Chicago, um, will be the James Beard Foundation Awards. Um that's that that's the that's the gist of the story i just kind of wanted to i mean the it, it's it's an exciting time to check out the list and look look at who's on it but i i as far as like highlighting the awards themselves i wait until the finalists list come out and then we'll chat about that um when that date comes around um so that was a very serious uh tangent uh segment so let's uh let's get a little bit less serious and switch to some uh quick gear chat uh polyscience um, the company behind your favorite immersion circulators and smoking guns just announced um, what they are calling their 400 series vacuum sealer. Um, so if you dig in the Instagram comments, they're saying that it goes for somewhere be- um, in the $3,500 price range. Um, but the funniest thing about this story and the reason that I wanted to talk about it is the, the the way they announced it. And that's linked in the show notes. It's an Instagram photo. And the comment that they made along with it, uh, it says... HACCP compliant data logs both sous vide cook slash chill cycles and vacuum data. Full keyboard, USB label printer, dual probes making logging a breeze. No more hiding the vacuum sealer. And for those of you that might be international or might not know what's happening back in the day um, in the US, especially like for example, there was a room in the basement of Alinea uh, when I, I, I and it was literally like a crawl space, like worse than where Harry Potter lived. And they would put stagiaires back there to vacuum seal things because sous vide uh, was this thing that the health department didn't really know how to handle. Uh, and when I was at Perse in 2011, it was great because they would they the way that they came to deal with um, the city is they would have clipboards next to the cryvac machines, and we would basically write what we were sealing, the weight, uh, the temperature going in, or something like that, and then a bunch of other information so that we would have kind of that integrated into the HACCP plan so that the city couldn't knock us for anything. Um, but that was kind of the basis where they tested that program at per se to make sure that it would work for the whole city. Um, so if you're in a kitchen that does a lot of sous vide, um, this one does it all for you and you don't have to sweat anymore when you get that knock on the door from the health department. Um, next up, we've got a super funny article from Nick Kikonis. Um, I know I talked about these guys uh Back in the last episode and i promise i'm not a fanboy all right maybe i'm I'm a little bit of a fanboy but i i really do respect what they're doing in the industry as far as like a macro play um i didn't really like how they were running the kitchen back in 2011 when i was there very briefly um as far as like my um, a micro um snippet, but that was, I mean, now that they're a larger restaurant group, I'm consistently impressed with how they do things on the internet, and they, I mean, they have they have the industry-leading platform for ticketed restaurant experiences called Talk, and that's kind of what the story is about. Um, so I've linked the full article, but here's an excerpt which might kind of give you the gist, and I mean, not all of this is quoted. Um, so um, Nick Conus thought... Uh, you know what would be funny for the National Restaurant Association show this spring is if we simply passed out toy dinosaurs that said opentablesaurus.com on them. And the gentleman that he's talking to raises his eyebrows, uh, as if to say, I don't follow yet, okay, but go on. Uh... And then he says, we could pass them out as a symbol of Open Table's antiquated technology. First, everyone loves dinos, right? When you were 10 years old, dinos were the coolest thing in the world. So if restaurant owners would actually take the toys, because, well, who doesn't want a toy dinosaur? Then they'd wonder, what's with this URL? And when they go to the URL, we'll have a big animated brontosaurus lumbering about the page that says Open Table on it. And there will be a few others as well, maybe Micros or Aloha, because everybody hates their POS system. And then a meteor will drop from the blue sky, obliterate all the dinos, and boom, you get redirected to a talk page. So that's kind of a uh, kick, in the sh- kick to the shins at uh, other competitors of them. And I mean, basically, Open Table, who is kind of this um, company that's had a monopoly on the reservation system in restaurants, all over the country, basically got pissed, sent Nick a letter, and he decided to write all about it. So, I mean, even more, my watch is going off, uh, so even more uh, good marketing, kind of at its finest. Um, so, the next thing that I want to talk about is um, Dan Barber's uh, Wasted pop-up, which gets underway in less than 10 days at Selfridges in Oxford Street in London. Um so the purpose of this project that he um I mean it ca- it had its first go almost 2 years ago here in the US um and the purpose of it all is to bring awareness to the usability of product that most of us kind of consider waste. So think like when you juice something and you've got all that pulp left over, well they made a burger out of it. And the conversation he wants to start isn't like hey look we made a burger out of fruit pulp, but uh to kind of pose the question why can't a fruit stand have a burger section? of it as well that kind of produces food um another great example of that uh one that didn't really hit home if, if it didn't really if this that story didn't really hit home for you um maybe this one will it's kind of his theory that he wants to cover um especially in the london edition where he doesn't just want to use kind of like expired dairy and vegetable peels but um, he mentioned the fact that london apparently grows a lot of wheat that gets used in feeding animals instead of humans and that's more or less what they want to talk about. Um, Another example he gives is in Japan, for example, one of the great crop rotators for getting a successful rice harvest is to plant buckwheat. So the question is, what do you do with all the buckwheat? Um, In America, when you plant buckwheat, you add it to dog food, and there's really no market um, here. But in Japan, it was such an important crop that you didn't have the opportunity to throw it in dog food. So instead, you created soba noodles, um, so you basically create this iconic Japanese dish, and I'm quoting this um, from, um, I believe it's Fine Dining Lovers, um, but only after several generations pass down this tradition of making noodles with buckwheat does it become culturally acceptable where you don't call it waste, you call it soba. Um, so what struck me about this addition was the most was the list of chefs he's gotten involved and they're from all over the map. So from ones that you expect to be there, um, like Christian, um, Puglisi of relay to like old school guys like Pierre Kaufman and Gordon Ramsay. Gordon Ramsay will be there. It's crazy. Um, so if you're interested in something like this, all of the dinners have unfortunately been sold out. You can get on a wait list. Um, if you check out the link that I'm providing, um, but there's spots open for lunch or afternoon tea because London. Uh, I mean, it'll be cool to see what the food looks like and what sort of ideas come from events like this, but uh, maybe we'll cover that um, in a later episode. So last uh, up here on the industry side of things, I've got a kind of a question I want to leave you with, and I want to cover this story before I ask it. So I'm going to read an excerpt, and it's from a New York Times article, and it's all about wine service. So to kind of set the scene... Um, a uh, table orders a bottle. The sommelier prevents the, presents the unopened bottle to confirm the wine. And now I'm quoting: "So at the restaurant where at restaurants where wine is not a particular point of pride, she might have opened it tableside while carrying on the usual banter with diners. But at restaurants that take wine seriously, like Italian, the sommelier will open the bottle in a private corner of the dining room. She will then take a small taste to make sure that the wine is not corked or flawed in, in some other way." That is how it went at Italian. When the bottle proved sound, the sommelier returned to the table and poured the wine for Mr. Hyatt and his guest. But in a departure from decades of wine protocol, she did not initiate the service by first pouring a little taste for Mr. Hyatt to evaluate. And then he says, never in my dining life had I encountered that, said Mr. Hyatt, who's 38, who considers himself an enthusiastic restaurant goer. And then he says, I felt a little cut out of the process. So you'll have to read the entire article because they provide a lot of different viewpoints and um, sommeliers and restaurateurs weigh in, kind of on their opinion. But the story here is basically talking about wine service in general and how the steps of service in regards to providing the best hospitality should evolve going forward. I'm going to take a sip of coffee here. Um, And this is my take as someone who enjoys wine, who has kind of an amateur's grip on what's going on, and who has kind of lived with sommeliers for the past four years upon uh, moving to Seattle, where I made the switch. Um, And I don't really work with wine on the day-to-day basis, obviously. Um, I think it's important to do this thing where you kind of unclip your ego, clip it off if you're a sommelier, put it on the ground, and step back for a second and really take a look at what's happening. So you have this culture of people has a love for instant gratification. That's just how people are these days. They enjoy 100% money back guarantees on everything they purchase. So you go anywhere, they'll offer you a 100% money back guarantee whenever you want. It is a generation of people who is able to read or watch reviews online for days in advance before they go on any sort of buying experience. And what you're doing is you're taking them and putting them at a table, giving them a list of things that you've selected, sometimes without the conversation of what do you like to drink, to these people that you're giving the list to because it'd be rude to assume that they don't know what's on the list, which is also their fault for not really saying, I don't really know what I'm looking at because nobody likes to do that. And the prices that they're, the, the wines are at are above the anchor prices, which is kind of like a, a psychology thing like the where like the anchor prices would be the menu. So those are the prices that they have to compare to where so if you have a main course dish at $35 and then you see a bottle of wine for 90 your anchor price is, is at 35 so it immediately seems expensive in your head so then when these people do order you have this archaic thing where you pour a small taste without a conversation because you want to be professional so of course things go wrong i mean t- to me this is just a po- uh, it's a problem of dealing with expectations so depending on the individual you have to be hospitable, of course, but um, I think you have to provide a sense of confident authority. So, I wouldn't send out a single piece of tagliatelle for you to taste before I give you the whole bowl of pasta because that's stupid. If I've done my job correctly, I've created a reputation for creating and selling my food to you in a way that you feel confident ordering off the menu, even though it just says tagliatelle, parmesan, truffle, egg yolk, or whatever. So, The question I'm asking is, what's the problem with having a conversation, right? So you don't have to sound like you work at Applebee's, but why not like, hey, folks, I'm Justin the sommelier here. Can I be of any help to you uh, while you're choosing a wine for the evening? And then when you bring them whatever they ordered, ask another question about them. Or if you tasted it, maybe preface bringing over the bottle with, have you had this wine before? I personally tasted it, and I'm really proud of how it's expressing. But if you'd like a small taste before I pour your first glass, I'm happy to do that. Um, That way, the wine is kind of well. If you also take a step back and, and think about the way that the wine is priced, is to include the cost of having a knowledgeable and conversationally competent sommelier. So, in my opinion, if you aren't good enough to sell, you'd kind of deserve to pay the price of that open bottle if the person didn't like it. And by the way, it's not to say that a wine shouldn't be sent back if something was wrong or you weren't enjoying it as as a guest just coming but like just coming from a business perspective, it's not Best Buy, right? Like you can't return you can return your pair of headphones if they didn't fit right because they can be put back on the shelf for the literally the hundreds of customers that they draw in every day. But to put it in perspective, in a restaurant if someone buys a bottle of wine that's a thousand dollars and they send it back because they didn't like it, if you priced your wine by the basic industry standard equation, that means that you bought the wine in for two hundred fifty to three hundred dollars. So, the way that you price your wine by the glass should then be charged that for that first glass what you paid for the bottle. So no one's paying two hundred fifty dollars for a glass of wine, and even if they do, you've still got three more glasses left to sell before you make your estimated profit. Wine is perishable and it's expensive. That's my point. It's also a question of time, right? So like. If this is your one night a week out with your date, you don't want to be talked to for 15 minutes by the sommelier. You want something to enjoy with your evening. You don't want a big, long, drawn-out um, kind of explanation. I forgot to fast-forward my slide here. Um, where was I? Um, I ne- th- th- this whole thing is just a fascinating story to me, and it's something that I'd love to get your thoughts on. So leave those in the comments, wherever you're listening, and because I, I'm very interested to hear what you have to say. Um, so in typical emulsion fashion, um, the last story I want to cover um, is something outside of the industry after that big, big long rant. Um, something that I find super fun or interesting, but it kind of doesn't play to the restaurant or food bubble. And this week for me is something that kind of speaks to my inner nerd. Uh, it's a video from Vox uh, that highlights uh, Shigaru Miyamoto, the designer of multiple video games, including Mario. If you're kind of into creativity or design, I really, really enjoyed this video, and that will be linked down below. So with that, this has kind of been episode two of The Emulsion. I hope you enjoyed this one. Got a chance to cover a little bit more, go a little bit deeper into the stories. Um, Hopefully you got some valuable information. Expect new episodes every week. Um, Again, I'm kind of working on getting a schedule down for this to make sure that the live streams can be a little bit more anticipated. But uh, 2 p.m. West Coast U.S. time on Wednesdays seems to be working okay. Um, In addition to the questions I posed earlier, I ask you for some immediate feedback if you made it this far. What did you like? What didn't you like about the show, the format? Also, I'd like to know how you consumed the show, if it was in podcast form as a YouTube video, Facebook video. So I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks in advance. I'm Justin Kana. Have a good one.